0: Welcome to Politics Considered, the podcast in which we will discuss some things political. I am your host, Bill Gallagher. Today, I will be discussing culture wars. It's impossible to fit culture wars into one podcast, so today is part one. Over the next few podcasts, I will be discussing what culture wars are, who starts them, and the reason people start them. These culture wars happening now in the U.S. are based on various cleavages, such as race, religion, class, geography. Urban versus rural is a big one right now. Uh, The culture war raging on education policy is also a big one that I will discuss in detail later. Today, I focus on what I call the morality culture war revolving around the religious cleavage. But first, some background on the big picture of culture wars. The term culture war gained steam in the 1990s, but culture wars have existed throughout history, most notably in 17th century France around religion. Most of us know what we mean by the term culture wars, but if we ask people on the street, we we might get different answers. So let's discuss. In his 2014 book, Culture Wars in America, Roger Chapman defined culture wars as political and sociological polarization that has characterized U.S. society for decades. In 2006, University of Virginia sociologist James Davidson Hunter posited that culture wars are always present below the surface of public life, and they are just ready to bubble up if prodded. And we've seen some prodding lately. Events such as a Supreme Court decision act like triggers that activate or aggravate this below the surface discord. And we we certainly saw this in the recent Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. They can also be local events that later become national. We've seen this a lot lately with people who are seemingly at the local level, but aided by a vast well-funded network they appear to organically pop up and people are outraged about what they perceive to be taught in schools or what they hear about drag queens reading to kids at a library but they're sort of bottom up top down they're often orchestrated and controlled and coordinated nationally and well-funded. I'll talk about this much more in the next few podcasts. After these issues surface, usually aided by social media, they often morph into a war. We've seen this lately. Interestingly, Hunter and many other political scientists have found that the public discourse is far more polarized than how people actually are, what people actually think about these things. The attitudes and opinions of people can be so influenced by social media and what I think of as tribal groupthink that these wars can become very intense and often lead to violence. Such violence, whether it be shootings in, uh, it's in synagogues or LGBTQ nightclubs or Obviously, the January 6th insurrection at our Capitol can be deadly. Even if they don't become violent, they can tear society apart, disrupt relationships, and create discord everywhere at the office, especially online. Thanksgiving is canceled. (laughs) Politicians fan these flames, often in a scorched earth approach that can be very harmful to society and individuals. Many argue that former President Donald Trump ignited largely dormant culture wars and helped start new ones. in twenty twenty two Clemson sociologists Alu Davis and Heather Ketry wrote: that culture war battles between americans on the right and left appeared to be in abeyance until they were reignited by donald trump's make america great again rally this is an obvious example of poking the surface these culture wars do seem to be much more intense today Some might argue that they were just as intense in the past, and I think they ebb and flow, but it seems to me that right now we are in a big and dangerous flow. Now that I have touched on the big picture, I'll talk about the religious cleavage, or what I'm calling the morality culture war. This is primarily a large, mostly white, evangelical Christian movement now focused on abortion and opposition to LGBTQ rights, this culture war intersects and overlaps with so many other culture wars that I will discuss in future podcasts. In tracing the origins of this culture war that still rages today, scholars focus on strategic decisions of national party elites, including Presidents Ronald Reagan, who championed the cause, President George H.W. Bush, who continued it, and President Bill Clinton, who signed into law the Defense of Marriage Act banning gay marriage. This includes leaders such as Republican presidential Pat Buchanan, who I argue is very influential. At the time, Buchanan was considered far right, but since I argue that the U.S. has moved to the right. Buchanan would probably fit in nicely with modern-day MAGA Republicans. Buchanan was a hero of the evangelical movement, and he was a firebrand who had good communication skills that he honed as a talk show host. In the 1992 presidential primary, Buchanan received almost 3 million votes and 23% of the popular vote. He was able to force President Bush into making huge concessions to him and his evangelical followers. He secured a primetime speech at the Republican National Convention of 1992 and so much more. And here is a clip from Buchanan's fiery speech at that 1992 Republican National Convention.
1: But tonight I do want to speak from the heart to the 3 million people who voted for Pat Buchanan for president. We disagreed with President Bush, but we stand with him for the freedom to choose religious schools. And we stand with him against the amoral idea that gay and lesbian couples should have the same standing in law as married men and women. We stand with President Bush. We stand with President Bush for right to life and for voluntary prayer in the public schools. And we stand against putting our wives and daughters and sisters into combat units of the United States Army. And we stand, my my friends, we also stand with President Bush in favor of the right of small towns and communities to control the raw sewage of pornography that so terribly pollutes our popular culture. We stand with President Bush in favor of federal judges who interpret the law as written and against would-be supreme court justices like mario cuomo who think they have a mandate to rewrite the constitution
0: in that clip i just played buchanan explicitly declared that he was waging a religious culture war for the soul of america he also mentioned these five issues support for religious schools public funding for them, opposition to gay marriage. Interestingly, uh, Bush lost to Clinton, and actually Clinton, a Democrat, signed the Defense of Marriage Act banning gay marriage. Okay, so he also mentioned opposition to abortion, prayer in public schools, opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment. He also discussed pornography and Supreme Court justices, That would ban abortion. The reason I played that excerpt from Buchanan's speech is because it enumerated the key culture war issues that evangelical leaders have been waging since the 1970s. At that time, traditional divisions and prejudices between religions, Protestants versus Catholics, etc. were dissipating. And starting in the late 70s and 80s, Americans were starting to divide over new issues, including abortion, gay rights, funding for the arts, affirmative action, and multicultural education. Sound familiar? So alliances previously unknown to American politics with conservatives of all faiths working together to fight Secular Americans and those identifying with more liberal strains of Christianity and mainstream Judaism emerged in the 80s and 90s. So instead of religion against religion, it it became about conservative Protestants, Catholics, and Orthodox Jews versus liberal Protestants, liberal Catholics, and mainline Jews, etc. Almost every major christian denomination in the u.s has split in half over over these cultural social issues most notably uh, marriage equality and while many including in the media think that this national divide and related culture wars began in the 90s It dates back further. Uh, Most scholars argue that the two political parties began to diverge on social issues in the late 70s in the aftermath of Roe versus Wade with the rise of far right organization, the Moral Majority, and the opposing positions taken by President Carter and Reagan in the 1980 election. As I mentioned earlier, in 1992, Buchanan and others persuaded President Bush to continue the culture war that President Reagan had previously championed. At this point, I must discuss one person who I would argue that more than any other is responsible for this culture war around abortion, LGBTQ rights, that today includes education, white supremacy, anti-Semitism, and seemingly every social issue in society. His name is Paul Weyrich. To put it bluntly, Weyrich was a segregationist who wanted the U.S. to be a white Christian nation. In the 1970s, Weyrich helped to launch an insurgent and self-proclaimed radical political movement he termed this the new right, and he wanted to reshape America. He coined the term moral majority, and in 1977, he founded the Christian Voice, which became the moral majority organization. In In 1979, Weirich co-founded that moral majority organization with Jerry Falwell, an evangelical minister. Falwell would become the notorious firebrand mouthpiece for the moral majority, but I would argue that Wyrick was the -the behind-the-scenes brainchild of the group. Wyrick also founded the Conservative and Influential Heritage Foundation and ALEC, American Legislative Council. Both the Heritage Foundation and ALEC have significant influence in all spheres of politics in American life today. Wyrick's main goal was to keep the U.S. segregated He was previously not interested in abortion, and it is unclear if he even personally opposed it. Evangelical Christians, including Southern Baptists, were not anti-abortion at the time necessarily. It was either not on their radar or they supported it. In a rather cynical move, Weyrich needed an issue other than his real aim— of whites-only schools and white supremacy to galvanize a conservative movement. At the time, a battle began over white Christian schools that wanted to retain tax-exempt status while excluding people of color. Today, we see this play out with them actually getting public funding. Specifically, Weirich and others at the time were mad about an IRS ruling that held that Bob Jones University and other whites-only universities and schools could not be tax-exempt. Weirich needed another issue, rather than support of racial discrimination, to mobilize these evangelical voters on a large scale. Racism and segregation did not pull well in the 1970s. I would like to think it would never pull well. In his 2021 book, Bad Faith, Race, and the Rise of the Religious Right, Dartmouth College professor Randall Balmer detailed the extensive research into Wyrick and the religious right movement. Balmer argued that the idea that the religious right emerged in response to the Roe v. Wade decision legalizing abortion in 1973 is a myth. It was really about this segregation issue and the goal of making the U.S. a white Christian nation. This, this idea, of course, is the opposite of what the founders of the U.S. had in mind. Weirich's legacy lives on today. We see this in the white nationalist rhetoric of politicians such as Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, Donald Trump and in certain right-wing echo chambers, especially on the internet. Balmer detailed evangelical indifference to the issue of abortion, then considered a Catholic issue, and even their support for legal access to abortion. Balmer's catalog of support for abortion by evangelical Christians prior to the 1980s may surprise some, but his scholarly work has since been supported by a body of studies and documentary evidence. In 2014, Balmer wrote, quote, One of the most durable myths in recent history is that the religious right, the coalition of conservative evangelicals and fundamentalists, emerged as a political movement in response to the U.S. Supreme Court's 1973 Roe v. Wade decision legalizing abortion, end quote. I thought that was an important quote. In 1979, a full six years after Roe, evangelical leaders at the behest of Paul Weyrich seized on abortion as a rallying cry to deny President Jimmy Carter a second term. Prior to the 1980s, Evangelical Christians were not anti-choice. Abortion was largely not seen as an issue. It was considered a Catholic issue. In 1971, delegates to the Southern Baptist Convention in St. Louis, Missouri, passed a resolution encouraging, quote, Southern Baptists to work for legislation to allow for abortion under under the same circumstances as outlined by Roe v. Wade. The Southern Baptist Convention reaffirmed that position in 1974, one year after Roe, and again in 1976. When the Roe decision was handed down in 1973, W.A. Criswell, the Southern Baptist Convention's then-president and pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, also one of the most famous fundamentalists of the 20th century, was pleased. Criswell said, quote, I have always felt that it was only after a child was born and had a life ses- separate from its mother that it became an individual person, and it has always, therefore, seemed to me that it what is best for the mother and for the future should be allowed, end quote. To this point, here is a clip of an interview that Leah Green did with The Guardian in 2019.
1: Early on, before Reagan, uh, the Republican Party was actually more abortion-friendly than, than Democrats.
0: So now back to the issue of segregated schools. In 1971, in Green versus Connolly, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that racially discriminatory private schools were not entitled to the federal tax exemption, actually the tax exemption that they enjoy today. And at the time, this galvanized the right. They quietly organized and gained so much steam with behind the scenes organizing, I would argue, quite savvy organizing, that they had tremendous wins beginning in the late 1970s in the 1978 U.S. Senate races, they scored major upsets. Anti-choice or anti-abortion candidates then framed as pro-life. These candidates scored major upsets in specifically in Iowa and Minnesota. Grassroots organizers put leaflets in Catholic church parking lots telling the faithful who to vote for. This still happens today. So interestingly, these were not Catholics. They were evangelical Christians, but they organized the Catholics and their own. Incumbents lost to insurgent anti-abortion crusaders. At that time, it became very clear, at least to political operatives, that the 1978 election was a flashpoint that represented a major step toward galvanizing evangelical voters. Balmer scoured Jerry Falwell's archives at Liberty University and wyrick's papers at the University of Wyoming, and he undercovered correspondence between Weirich and evangelical leaders. In a letter to fellow conservative Daniel Hales, Weirich characterized the triumph of what he called pro-life candidates as, quote, true cause for celebration, end quote. The papers also shed light on Robert Billings, an evangelical leader who also helped found the moral majority. The archives reveal that Billings predicted that opposition to abortion would, quote, pull together many of our Christian fringe friends, end quote. I thought that's an important quote because it makes me think of former President Trump's exploitation of his own fringe base. And now we hear how Fox hosts have been mocking their own audience and calling them fringe behind the scenes in text messages uncovered through court discovery in the recent Uh, Lawsuit against Fox for defamation of character. Billings took credit for helping to register 3 million new evangelical voters to elect Ronald Reagan president in 1980. Reagan had signed into law as governor of California in 1967, the most illiberal and permissive abortion law in the entire nation. But this began their savvy and successful laser focus on electing candidates who would install a Supreme Court that would, actually did, overturn Roe v. Wade and oppose pluralism. So we can see they've been very successful. Falwell took credit for Reagan defeating President Carter, albeit there were many factors that led to Carter's loss. President Carter was an evangelical and self-described born-again Christian, but he did not buy into these culture wars and crusades against gays, etc. Actually, Carter said that he believed, quote, Jesus would approve of gay marriage, end quote. He believed that Jesus would encourage any love affair if it was honest and sincere and not damaging to anyone else. And he didn't, you know, he just didn't see how gay marriage could possibly hurt anyone else's marriage. He, with regard to uh, abortion, he said he wrestled with the abortion issue, but he honored the Roe v. Wade decision. His love thy neighbor Christian attitude and embrace Of civil rights especially for people of color was at odds with the war that the new Christian right was waging on large segment of society and it's interesting Carter was a self-described born-again Christian but he lost the evangelical vote because of these issues Reagan and later Bush senior were willing to embrace the far-right for political gain even though I think they were both not in full agreement, at least with it, at least in their heart of hearts. Both Reagan and Bush were at the, were championing trickle-down Friedman economics, deregulation, and deregulated capitalism, deregulated banks, deregulated airlines. But I don't think that, that they were really into these um, p- extreme social positions. As time goes by, I think history is showing former president carter in a more favorable light both as president and certainly as a humanitarian and as most economists are now rejecting trickle-down economics and people are reflecting on the needless death of so many um, by aids under reagan's watch i think reagan's presidency is starting to be seen less favorably that was a bit of a rabbit hole but i think that it is an understatement to say that president carter got a bad rap at the time. On May 24, 1983, in Bob Jones University v. the U.S., the Supreme Court ruled against Bob Jones in an 8-to-1 decision. The court found that the IRS was correct in its decision to revoke the tax-exempt status of Bob Jones University and the Goldsboro Christian School. The court majority held that these schools did not meet the requirement of providing beneficial and stabilizing influences in community life to be supported by taxpayers with a special tax status. Notably, three years later, President Reagan elevated the sole dissenter in that case, William Rehnquist, then considered fringe, to Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And before I pivot back to abortion, one more note about Paul Wyrick, who I am crediting with being being more than anyone else responsible for launching this evangelical electoral crusade, and he's been called the architect of the conservative movement. Even though he used the term moral majority, Wyrick knew that evangelical voters were very much in the minority. He knew how to count votes. He realized that in order to win, he needed to get more of his people out to vote, but he also knew that he needed to make it harder for Democrats to vote. When it comes to the current voter suppression, uh, wyrick had strategized about this in the 1970s. He just did not want people of color to vote. Here is an excerpt from a 1980 speech to a religious right gathering in Dallas, Texas. This is Paul Weyrich speaking.
1: Now, many of our Christians have what I call the goo-goo syndrome? Good government. They want everybody to vote. I don't want everybody to vote. Elections are not won by a majority of people. They never have been from the beginning of our country, and they are not now. As a matter of fact, our leverage in the elections quite candidly goes up as the voting
0: populace goes down. Wow. Weirich told evangelicals that he did not want good government, but instead minority rule, and here we are today. So how exactly did abortion specifically become an issue for evangelicals? Weirich told Balmer that during a conference call with Jerry Falwell and other evangelicals in the 1970s, They strategized about how to retain their tax exemptions and keep their schools segregated. During the call, someone suggested that making abortion illegal might be a winning issue. To quote Balmer, quote, several suggestions followed, and then a voice on the line said, how about abortion, end quote. It took over 10 years for this to gain traction. Only in the early 1980s did opposition to abortion finally become an evangelical battle cry. After Ronald Reagan was elected president in 1980, he addressed 20,000 cheering evangelicals in August, He mentioned his support for creationism and criticized the IRS for its supposed vendetta against evangelical schools. But notably, at that time, he said nothing about abortion. And nevertheless, leaders of the religious right, including Falwell, hammered away at this issue, hammered away at Reagan, persuading evangelicals to make support for a constitutional amendment outlawing abortion, a litmus test for their votes. Reagan gave in to this pressure, and as I mentioned earlier, he made abortion an issue of it in his reelection campaign. The religious rights embrace of abortion as a political issue allowed leaders to camouflage the real origins of their movement, the defense of racial segregation. The bottom line is that this culture war is raging today, and we see the exact same language and rhetoric used by these early white supremacists being used now by many political leaders in the Republican Party, many of whom are sitting on congressional committees, I find that this history helps to shed light on the current morass of unnecessary and harmful culture wars that we are in today. The actions by politicians such as Reagan demonstrate how politics is often a cynical game, and I certainly understand why most people are turned off by politics. The sad and tragic thing about culture wars is that it is as if people in a back room are just spinning a wheel. One day it lands on women's rights, another day on LGBTQ people, and now on drag queens. This may be a game to those who start them, but they can be tragic for the victims. All wars have victims and culture wars are no exception. Politics can be a dark topic. Um, This is why I try to keep my sense of humor (laughs) and lightness of being when teaching my poli sci classes. So here are a few bad jokes. What do you call a bad lawyer, a senator? Waiting for results on election night is like waiting for your grade on a group project. I know I did my part, but I'm worried that the rest of you screwed it up politicians can find an excuse to get out of anything except office. <laughs> well, that is actually as President Biden likes to say, it's no joke. It's no joke. I really need to work
1: on that. Not a joke. That is a natural fact. <laughs> it's not a joke. I'm not joking about this. Not a joke. No, really, I mean it. No, really is. I mean it. And this is for real. But all kidding aside. No, I mean it.
0: In all seriousness, culture wars are no joke. In future podcasts, I will be interviewing people, including political scientists and other interesting guests. On the next podcast, I will discuss the education policy cleavage and the culture war around higher education, grade school, etc. Spoiler alert, CRT. I hope you'll tune in. Until next time, be kind to yourself and others.